0: My name is Justin Gage, and you're tuned in to the Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions Podcast with your host, Jason Woodbury.
1: Welcome to another episode of Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions. I'm so glad to have you here. Today on the show, Ken Shipley of Numero Group. October has arrived, but the storied Chicago label was still in the midst of its September 90s month celebration, uh, commemorating reissues from Codeine, Karate Current, and Unwound back when we taped this. Uh, since then the label has announced a truly bonkers 20th anniversary celebration for early 2023 uh, which we'll see unwound coding, hated karate Ida chisel featuring Ted Leo everyone asked about you Ui featuring transmissions guest Sasha Frere Jones Rex and tsunami all performing February 18th and 19th at Los Angeles's Palace theater Um, I think that that is a, a, a pretty cool thing that they've got going on, and uh, we cover a lot of that sort of shift towards understanding the 90s in a new way in this talk. Uh, we get into uh, some discussion of how Numero has evolved, uh, Shipley's Midwest emo roots, and pre-Numero days at Ricoh Disc and Tree Records, and of course I had to ask him whether or not Numero will ever release a new metal reissue uh we get into a lot more as well so i hope you enjoy this talk uh i'll speak with you a little bit more on the other side thanks for listening to transmissions we're getting close to wrapping up uh our our 2022 season in uh mid-november so uh, just a couple more episodes this year before we uh shut the pod down to focus a little bit on getting the best of the year list finished and a lot more so um just a a couple more episodes of transmissions this year and then i'm gonna take a little break and of course we'll be back in 2023 so just a heads up about that let's get into my conversation with ken from numero group i really enjoyed speaking with him and i think you're gonna love this one i'll talk with you more on the other side Ken, thanks so much for hanging out with us here on Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions. It's a real pleasure to have you.
0: Rad to be here.
1: All right, so I'm going to start with a weird one. Uh, I think if I'm if my math is right, the label turns 20 next year. Is that right?
0: The label turns 20 next year. Uh, technically, I mean, a lot of people maybe don't know this, but before I started Numero in 2003, I, uh, worked at a company called Rycodisc. and mm-hmm. while I was there, they, um, we sort of had like this little 45 label that they let me do, um, called Numero and we did 1045s as sort of like A&R one-offs and we did things like Brian Jonestown Massacre and the Warlocks and Sahara Hot Nights and, you know, a, a, a sort of a smattering of, of turn of the century, you know, garage de rigueur kind of, uh,
1: yeah. yeah uh
0: and then uh, i i thought that the idea for the label was too good when i lost my job in january of um 2003 um i was like god you know i don't want this to just die over there because i actually already had this idea for a numbered series of records and and it was just like it was like it seemed like i was just gonna waste it if i left it there um and uh one of the cool things when you know i got my severance and was uh asked to to no longer work there um, was that I got to take all my A&R leads with me too and you know so it was really like fortuitous to to kind of come out of Ricoh Disc and then sort of immediately already had the idea for the label I, it just happened to me that I didn't have any money at the time that was like kind of holding the whole thing back
1: Right, right So yeah, so, so Numero technically got its start under the auspices of being a little RICO thing but you were immediately able to take that concept and get started with what you've since assembled
0: yeah i mean i when i was working at ryko they had me doing sort of like catalog maintenance and and cleanup work um i didn't know this at the time but you know we were owned by jp morgan chase and they were trying to figure out how to get enough assets into the company so that they could sell it for a reasonable profit because it had come out of a A bunch of like, um, you know, like it had been merged several times. It was like in a, it was a really bad state when I worked there. And so um, when I got there, I helped work on some stuff when they got the Restless Records catalog. uh, And you know, it was just kind of like doing, like proposing ideas from within their catalog of like other things that they could be doing, whether that was. You know, making the big star record not look like a total piece of junk or the Chris Bell record look <laughs> a little bit better or thinking about vinyl, which they, you know, they, they'd done kind of no vinyl at the time, um, right. David Bowie stuff and just sort of wrapping their heads around the idea that there was maybe going to be a younger generation of reissue buyers because you, you have to, you know, when I was coming into it. You know, the, the really hot labels were like Honest John's is doing great work. Soul Jazz is just taking off and everything just looks so cool. You know, the European presence of reissues so felt so much more turned on and interesting. And then Luaka Bop dropped the Shuggy comp, which was just like mind-blowing, you know, at the time. And I remember David Holmes, Come Get It, I Got It comp came out and that had like Sixto Rodriguez. And just like it just felt like there was a, a whole groundswell of like interest. Oh, Funky 16 Corners. Um, On Stone Throw came out, and there were just all these cool little prompts. Mickey and the Soul Generation on DJ Shadows, Cali Text Records, that that had like come out, and it's just like it just seemed like that there was maybe more of a market for underground music. And my employers just they just didn't understand it because I was interested in all this stuff, you know. Like I was, you know, I was asking them about, you know, like oh, we should sign this. I mean, I brought Rodriguez to Ryko Disc in the year 2001 it was like one of the first things that I, was I was like we should do this record and they were like nah we don't understand it it's you know like, yeah i mean there's so many things that i worked on plain white tees was something that i tried to sign over there and we were close on Could have tried to sign the dismemberment plan tried to sign the walkman uh and it just we just couldn't get anything out of start because the bank just you know they had that claw around the company and they, right they wouldn't allow. Right really anything cool to happen so
1: wow yeah so when you do launch the label you know i remember i was working in i well i if you launched it in 2003 this would have been a couple of years later but still pretty early on in the label's history i remember somebody coming in to the store i worked at zia looking for the the mike lenneberg comp which was like such a, a a huge touchstone for people recognizing like oh my God, like this, there was music here that, in Arizona specifically, you know, that it's like mind-blowing like this. It's it's so heavy and so interesting. But, so that's sort of how I got introduced to the the label. And then I immediately, of course, found myself drawn to the cohesive aesthetic of the, the presentation and all of that stuff. Was that, how did that start? come into your head how did that start for you this idea that it's going to have like a a uniform but somehow not uniform look at various points you know when when was that all kind of baked into the concept when you when you launched
0: i mean i had a pretty rigid idea of what the design should be i knew that i wanted it to all be numbered and i'd gotten that idea from Actuel. i don't know if you know the french free jazz label um, yeah. I, you know, I, I started buying actual records around the turn of the century and just thought they were so beautiful. That big white canvas with the right. photo and the number up top with the a, and I just looked at that and I was like, I wanted to own all of them. And I used to carry around on my wall at a list of all the actual numbers, just that I was missing. It's like, it didn't even have the artist names. Just like, if I come across these numbers, cause I was just buying them to kind of fill it out. And eventually I got, you know, all the ones that I want. Uh, right, but you know, it was like. That was the way I started thinking about records. And I i sort of always had a, a kind of a, you know, a collector mentality just because I started collecting baseball cards when I was a kid. And, you know, my thing about baseball cards is that I collected complete sets and I'd only comple- collect a complete set through buying packs. I wouldn't just buy the set. It was like about trying to configure something on luck you know and like, yeah. it was, like it was a, a you know early digging mentality for me you know because it's like i'd go into the baseball card shop and be like let me look through your comments so that i can like you know fill out this <laughs> this 1987 top set you know
1: yeah um yeah
0: and so that that mentality was already there kind of coming into it and i would always been a, a collector of records and i've always been fascinated by record labels you know like from a from a pretty young age i mean kent mcclard um had this record label called ebullition in Santa Barbara that was just so influential on, on me. And, you know, like just the way his aesthetic, his DIY aesthetic really meant a lot to me. And so I really wanted to make the label something that celebrated record labels uh, and, and celebrated the idea that record labels were cool and that there was a reason to kind of follow what the record label was doing. And the aesthetic, the aesthetic was sort of that way to be like, Oh, if you like this, you'll like that. And I mean, I remember like, having a subscription to Mojo in 2000, 2001 and being like, you know, if you read Mojo magazine, there's gotta be a record label that would like cater to, you know, all the kind of esoteric, you know, like stretches of that. And at the time that seemed esoteric to me. Um, and it wasn't really, you know, I, if we, if you saw the kind of things that we were doing, you know, all over the place now, it wouldn't really make sense, but it just felt like there was this market of people out there that, would want this you know would want a disparate palette of music but wouldn't necessarily know how to find all those little corners like how do you get into gospel music you know maybe you're curious about gospel music because there's not a great way in and then it's like well hey let's make something for that person
1: yeah no absolutely i mean i think back to my personal you know engagement with like this uh, with with soul music through you know labels like your own and of course like guys like mike mcgonigal's gospel comps you're just like this is it's 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 like i guess that's kind of baked into the whole reissue idea right like the sort of harry smith like uh selector as a kind of alchemist who it's like we're taking all these things and we're turning it into this thing which can be a very multi-shaped thing what what was like do you remember the first thing where because you guys at this point have branched off and you've done all sorts of stuff from exotica to garage rock to every, you know there's pretty much no genre untouched but like do you remember the first thing where you were like i don't know if this can be numero i mean do, do you you know did you ever what were some of those early oh, debates
0: I mean, you know <clears throat> we always sort of had let set a rule that it had to be old enough to drink. That was kind of our, ethos for it. it was just like, we wanted it to be just enough aged that it felt right. Like it disappeared. Uh, and that's changed over the years, mostly because like now we're like, man it would be great if it wasn't on spotify already you know like there's like other rules that we sort of obey where we're like oh wouldn't it be cool to re- to introduce this to a different world um but right. i i i do feel like there were some early aesthetic choices like when we got into doing coding and i know that was like 10 years into the label but when we started looking at 90s stuff it was that moment where we're like is this numero there was a moment when we were looking at just buying up other another label and just so that we could release these nineties records on it. Cause we didn't feel like new, like, was like, Oh, people think numero is a soul label or a private press folk label or what, you know, whatever, you know, what kind of had a, right. uh, 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 an underground aesthetic and this stuff felt very like, I don't know, like, like post songwriting, you know, like where, where it was just like everything earlier in numero had felt like it was like, Oh, we're trying to tell the story of like, you know, different, like an alternative, universe of popular music here that that yeah these like oh you like james brown here's something that sounds like james brown whereas cody wasn't trying to sound like anything and they weren't trying to have songs per se in the traditional way there's not it's not burst chorus you know um right. but that, it felt like there was this divide there for the label for a minute where it was like oh, what are we gonna do are we gonna be like can we can we pull this off uh and then eventually we were like you know what it's it's better for us to just go out there with the Numero logo on something and just be like, trust us, then it is to try to create another brand because we tried to create other yeah. brands in the past. Like we had a little label called asterisk for a minute. We had this label called numero phone. We still have this dumb little imprint called number you know, and it's just like, right. we've, we've tried to kind of like, subvert the brand in a tamla motown kind of fashion but it's just never worked and it always feels just like when we say it's on numero it means something and when we say it's on something else it's like well did you mean it like why you know like who's gonna start following in another record label it's already hard enough to follow this record label now you got now i gotta follow numero phone
1: right right yeah no that makes that makes sense i mean people it we live in an attention economy to some degree. So it's like having trusted sources is important. And, but I think it's interesting that like the sort of, cause the nineties thing, like I knew it's like, sometimes I think about how like you, of course we all understood that eventually reissue labels. were going to also start doing things that are maybe stuff we remember personally, you know, and that's not really the case as much for me with some of the nineties stuff. Um, I think I'm maybe a little, a few generations later in terms of like sort of the emo, indie rock, punk crossover zone, but it's also stuff that I started to get familiar with, and I I was thinking about some of the, because as we're recording this, we're talking in the tail end of 90s month. I think this is technically going to air after 90s month has concluded, but also two of the 90s month titles I was just informed aren't out until November anyway, so welcome to the music industry and uh,
0: it's 90s season
1: (laughs) 90s season exactly yeah there you go it's 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 like spooky season they dovetail um but like groups like unwound codeine karate like karate was like right where i was like yeah I, i i do remember seeing like maybe ads for them in alt press or whatever as i right as i was getting in but but you were like you kind of were more on the ground level, right? Because you had a label even before Ryko Disc, even before you were involved. You were, you ran your own label at Tree. When did you when did you found that?
0: Uh, that was founded in 1995. Uh, I was about 17 years old and living in Cupertino, California, and I. I'd been booking shows for a couple of years and I'd always wanted to put out a record. And a bunch of friends of mine had put out records too. You know, it's like, it, like putting out a seven inch, didn't seem that ominous, you know, it wasn't like I, right. somebody was like, here's the simple machines handbook on how to press a record and you look through it and you're like, okay, so it's just money. Right. Like, like that's all that really put yeah. it down. He's like, find some bands, yeah. raise some money, and then you can have your own record. And I was in bands and I wanted to put out our own records, but mostly like, There was this really magical summer in 1994 in Cupertino where I booked all these shows at the library, which was a really cool space. And like every band that came through was just cool and just like vibey in the sort of emo-ish way that that there could be a vibe at the time. Um, Yeah. And and I, you know, as they were coming through and I was booking, I was like, hey, I want to make a comp and I want to document what is what happened here over this summer. And, you know, I ended up getting seven DATs together and making my first record out of, you know, these different disparate brands. Really, the only thing that they had to do with it was that I booked them at this library that summer. And, I you know, it sort of felt like I also I knew that I wasn't going to be like an emo kid forever because my tastes were t- already too adventurous then. And I could sure. see myself leaving it behind. But, but, but wanting to be like, here's a souvenir of that time. And, and that's really why, you know, like I started the label. Um, In '95, and I remember uh, coming back to Kent McClard from Ebullition who was again like a a, like a a role model of mine at the time. Him telling me or writing somewhere or something, being like, you know, don't start a record label and think that you're going to live on it. Like, like, like it's a recipe for failure. And I was, and I, and it's funny. Like, I remember starting it in like, you know, May or April of 1995, and being like, man, I'm going to live on this record label yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> immediately you know, that was that that was the thought huh <laughs> well it just seemed like it, it just seemed possible like given the economics of it like yeah it, like i could just make it work and i i once i made the first record and it, it like you know the first the way i made my first record was that uh i went around on sunday nights with on a skateboard with a bat with a bag and went through and grabbed cans out of recycling bins and then on monday morning i'd take them over to the place in the parking lot around the corner from my house and just start stacking those 30 dollars things up and then you know it didn't take that long i had a little distro that i was running out of my locker that also had you know some some money coming in but like it it took me you know not that long to kind of raise the money to be able to do that first record and once you make that first record i don't know it's like an addiction to it in a way of like oh wouldn't it be cool if i made another record and then you know, like it was always like, God, if you have enough, if you have a couple of records, you can put an ad in, in a in a magazine or, you know, and it's just right. like, how do I get enough so that I can do this? And there were just these like mental, little mental hurdles that I could really envision early on of like, oh, this isn't going to be that hard, you know, to do this.
1: Right. No, absolutely. That's, that's interesting. And it's part of, I've, I've been thinking a lot in regards to 90s season and just 90s nostalgia in general, because I do believe we're living through a, a serious nostalgia craze that expands and extends in a lot of different directions, I think. Uh, I think 90s nostalgia, I think obviously nostalgia for any time is complicated, but I'm just, for whatever 90s of the first decade, I could really remember kind of in a real way, you know what I mean? Like, So I find myself questioning, like, all the various strands of it. But part of, I think, what people are so drawn to from that era is that it was a pre-online era. And I feel like what you're describing is just such a, uh, it's the old world in a, in a certain way, yeah, it's right? The,
0: it's the before times, right? Like, it, 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 I, yeah. I didn't have email when I started my record label. Everything was done through the mail, you know? Like when someone right, would right. order records, I'd pack the order and send it to them. And it's just, I don't know, it, it, it felt very small. You know, but at the time yeah. I was like, well, how yeah. can this be big? You know, and and like kind of getting back to I think your earlier question, which is like, you know, where did I play? Where did Codeine and Karate um, and all these bands sort of play and Unwound play into that world? It's like, well, you know, I, I'd seen Unwound, you know, with like 20 people, you know, like I booked Line right. legs, which was Vern's, Vern's other band like, you know, Codeine. I remember uh, me and my girlfriend taking her dad's truck up to Petaluma to see their only all ages show in the Bay Area in 1993 and then sleeping in the back of the truck in a park that night after the show. You know, it's just like I'd, I'd right. karate like I didn't I didn't I'd heard about the record in early 95. When I got to New York in 95, I got the record, you know, like I saw the record. and I was like, cool, I can buy it. I mean, you know, these records, it wasn't like you could just go on Discogs. It was just like you'd hear about a record and be like, I could either mail order it, which you didn't always, you know, wasn't always going to be a reliable thing or you'd go to a store and find it. And there's just like fewer options to sort of like get this stuff. That's why all of it sort of meant a lot more to me, I suppose. And, you know, to that point about nostalgia, you know, it's just like, I, I don't know that what I'm doing with the record label right now is about my personal nostalgia all the time. I mean, I certainly think that like, if I liked it, I tend to think it was pretty good and I'd like to share it with people um, right time, right. but but it's also me sort of like recognizing that because of this pre-internet world, a lot of this stuff just didn't have a chance to to have a life. You know, like I think about bands that I thought were really huge in the late '90s, like June of '44, and then later I learned out how much ma- how many records they were selling, and I was like, that's not that many for how big that band seemed in my mind. The Promise yeah. was the same way; they seemed like a massive band in my mind, but then you know I learned about how much they sold records. I was like, God, that's like that's nothing compared to what records were selling at the time when like Britney or NSync was opening up with a million CDs in week right. 1 you know like right. It, right it seems so small potatoes and so it's really has occurred to me that every time we get a band like everyone asked about you or native nod um or 90 day men you know or or, or you know or c clamp or whatever and it's like we get to put them on the platform for the first time we get to sort of reintroduce them to people who are like yeah we're going to get that older crew of people who i remember that band they were okay or like oh that band, sure. my favorite band or whatever it is but you know what i'm more interested in is like a 17 year old kid right now hearing you know a band like coding and being like that's cool um that that's the vibe of my life. And I want to listen to these records. and I don't really care when they're from.
1: Yeah. I mean, and we're seeing all sorts of interest in like, you know, it's easy to get dystopian about the streaming age. And I definitely s- succumb to dystopian thinking about it at times. But it's also interesting to think that like, yes, a 17 year old kid, it's the same way it was for you or I. It's not it's it's new to us it does it's relevant you know what i mean and like there's never been a better time for sort of re- like remembering that as a as a an important thing to know you know what i mean that like it's new it's ever new for a lot of these kids i mean the the kate bush thing is a good example where it's like of course it's a incredible song but it's not. It, they didn't. It wasn't stuffed down everybody's throats on classic rock radio for forty years either. You know what I mean? Like so.
0: Yeah, and that's why you know when I was talking about the alternate history of popular music earlier, it's like yeah, you know, they just like what you said. You know, when something is not stuffed down people's throats, there's just no way that it's going to going to become an earworm, and because distribution was. Totally erratic until the digital age. You know, getting get, getting music to people was really difficult, and so the chances of having a hit on an indie label were really, really you know, obscure and and not available to happen. And now I look at it, I, I look at something like Duster, and I'm like, you know, Duster's bigger than pavement <laughs> You know, yeah. and that's not <laughs> a thing that I think anybody would have like been able to think about at the time and been like, oh yeah, like this band that played like you know ten shows, you know, like is going to be bigger than this band that was like defined the 1990s you know and it's just it's it's kind of wild to think about that you know and it's just it's that the that like what's popular is not always popular because it's the thing that everybody wanted it's just what everybody heard
1: well yeah for sure and something like i can see your copies of the duster box set back there i've got one in the mix too i i loved that record and it's like you get a sense of you hear a band like that i mean they basically released an album not that long ago barely m- even mentioning that they had done so and and it's like funny you're like the thing that we're nostalgia for nostalgic for often in the case of some of this stuff is just a sense of mystery it's a sense of less availability and i think that like that's become an ever more attractive proposition to people right like that you do have to at least know it's actually it's not hard to figure things out now but you still have to have this sort of desire to to want to and something like duster has this innate sense of like distance and mysterious you know uh, quality to it and i think that's a thread that often runs through the the discography even though like i said we're bouncing around from style to style so i think that maybe there's a weird maybe that's part of the the thread
0: well the thread is is underground music for me like, right you know like right. we i i never wanted to start a record label so that we could go to sony and do a deal with sony to like help them you know redo their floors, you know, while I rent their apartment. Like I was just never right, in my mindset right. because I'd actually seen that at RICO because we'd done the same thing with the Nick Drake catalog where we made it super shiny Volkswagen commercial. You know, it was selling, it went from selling like 50,000 records to selling like 450,000 records in a really short amount of time. And I saw that and, you know, Universal then was like, thank you very much. We got this from here. You know, yeah, peace. And yeah. I looked at that and I was like... <laughs> what a terrible business model. If your whole business model is essentially like renovate apartments. Um, right. And I, right. I just, I just didn't, I, I never saw us doing it. it we have strayed from that. Like we did the Mike Stevens record um, mostly for personal reasons. And we did uh, the Ned Doheny thing. We've, you know, like we've licensed a handful of things from the majors over the years, mostly because they're relationships that we want to have with an artist. And we want to make something that feels complete. But my, yeah. my desire you know and getting back to that that point about you know Numero being an underground label and that being the aesthetic is it's like I don't want to deal with stuff that's been dealt with by other people I'm not really that interested in it like I want to find that next layer I want to find things that people haven't heard and and you know dig deeper into that and expose it for the people who never got a chance to hear it the first time
1: right right so so where does something like with something like the Blondie box set which was a really incredible thing with that, you're kind of interestingly presenting an alternate history of Blondie, even you know, which is like you know, kind of ties in. But are those kinds of projects where you're? I, we had we had uh, we had Clem Burke on the the podcast, and I think it'll air after this one. Uh, so spoiler alert to everybody. But anyway, you know, the band was super involved in this one. I'm sure the label was super involved in management. I mean. Are are those things like, what is it that makes you say to yourself, okay, this one is worth us kind of negotiating all the varying factors that would normally hang a thing up. What's the, what's the thing that causes you to pull that trigger?
0: Yeah, I think it's really about like, what kind of relationship we're going to have with the artists and the musicians and, 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 you know, like for somebody like Blondie, for instance, you know, that, that deal's really complicated and. It's too complicated and totally not for this call. But you know, we, sure, we got a sure. really, really good deal out of it. Just say that you know, like for the label, it's it's a deal that I don't think a lot of people could have negotiated, and we got to do that because we got close with the band and their manager and and showed them what we thought was possible. And you know, when you look at the Blondie box set, it's like you know, it's a it's a it's like a Chrysler of of <laughs> you know, Chrysler building a box. It's a, it's a beautiful box set, very much. Yeah, um, and, and so you know, they I think everybody and Universal got a lot out of that too. You know, it's just like. So I, I think for us, you know, that that changing, um you know, changing the 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 model for what we do really depends on, you know, like what other caveats that are going to be going our way that we're going to get that are maybe going to be. And and like something also like Blondie it's like, well, we have a lot of really big cultural value in doing a Blondie box set. Right. It's like, you know, you do something that big yeah, of really course. Puts humor on the map you know like it's like every time somebody's now who's reading uh you know the new york times and they're reading about blondie and they're seeing numero listed in there and they don't know what that is that's an opportunity for people to come and find out about it and you know when you're working with a band that's got you know, millions of fans, like legitimately millions of fans. It's, it's cool to work on something of that scale and that size, you know, where you can really like look at the operation of a, a larger artist. And then, you know, like to me, it, it also shows that we can flex up and do things that are different, you know, and that like Numero is is more like software than than hardware you know like it's just like we can run a we can run a program and we can you know we can do something cool um and you know like i i I stand by i mean like the music to me and the blondie set you know it's like i don't think i would have been interested in it if we were just going to do the six albums but that i was going through chris stein's barn and going through all his tapes and got to like really listen to this stuff and kind of like get into their heads and see their universe a little bit um, yeah, made it feel yeah. you know, like God. Like uh, this is this is. I know how we can tell this story, and it's going to be really fun to do this thing that you know, like a lot of people would kill to do. <laughs>
1: Putting your music up online is not always the easiest thing in the world to figure out, but DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and, as an artist, you keep 100% of your royalties and earnings. A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to get their music into Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, all the major streaming services. You can use it to edit your lyrics and your song credits. So important in the internet age to let people know the kind of people you're collaborating with and uh, DistroKid makes that easy. You can also see all your stats from the streamers and of course, add a credit card to purchase album extras The DistroKid app is available now on iOS and Android. Go to the app or Play Store to download it. Uh, There's so many projects. Like, I was thinking about the the Blondie project, and then it called to mind just in terms of its kind of even more insane than the Blondie project is the best show box set that you guys did, which is (laughs) one of the true like art objects that I own that I just, I look at it and I can't believe how much care and attention and detail went into it. And I, um, I know that like, obviously that one's not in print, but how could it stay in print? It's, it's, you know, one of these insane things, but I just think about something like that. You're, you're shaking your head a lot. I don't know. I don't want to.
0: <laughs> no, I mean, it's just, I, I just think about how like you can't keep everything in print and, and you know, like, especially with box sets, the, the complicated part about a box set is that it's so expensive to make and right. you really try to have have to try to like nail how many you're going to make because the repress is always super way more expensive than you think it's going to be. And it always comes later than you think it's going to be. And the sad thing about box sets, even though I love them and I don't know, I've made like 30 of them in my life. Yeah. But the sad (laughs) thing about them is that they have like one season, you know, and like, we'll like buy them right when they come out and then record stores stop buying them. And then consumer interest kind of dries up and it's always just like, I don't know. Like you always, like I, it's always funny how like, Eight months after you make a box set, you're like looking at whatever you have left, and being like, well, how are we gonna get rid of all these box sets that are left over? Because you know, like they they, they are not an evergreen product in the way that you know, like I can press up, um you know, a Voltage Jazz LP, and you know, like it's like it's it's a little more evergreen because it's just easier to take Voltage Jazz out of the Bobo Yaya yeah yeah box set than repress the Bobo Yaya yeah yeah box set, especially when, of course when I can look at. You know the streaming data on it and be like oh well the songs that people want to listen to are by volta jazz so let's just put the songs people want to listen to on an lp and make it at a price that they can afford as opposed to putting it on you know like can, keeping it in this upmarket,
1: yeah you know, of course
0: tombstone that you know like can't can't be you know mobilized for a, a different kind of buyer um and i think it's like really trying to recognize that there's a lot of different kind of people in the marketplace, you know, like there's people who just want to stream, love it. There's people who want to buy vinyl, love it. You know, like, um, you know, there's people who like cassettes. Great. You know, like like trying to find, you know, people who want to only buy high-end records. Great. You know, people, who, you know, like people only like mass market records. It's, it's, it's you've got to have yeah. something for everyone or else you can't really meet them. I mean, the consumer, you know, like, like they're harder to find than you think. You know, so you have got to have that thing they want. So like with Blondie, we made four configurations because I was like, well, there's going to be people who complain about the fact that they got to buy six albums to get these bonus tracks. Let's just get right. a box with the bonus tracks. You know, like yep. limit down. And yeah. So like all those little choices, I feel I feel like we are making. You know, on behalf of the con- for the consumer and trying to you know think about that end user a little bit more because I just hate the idea of making garbage. I hate the idea that like something gets thrown away or that we press too many and we got to like sell it at a steep discount or throw it away or you know like it's just it's right it's right it's like not why i got into doing this you know it's like to create waste i wanted to create art um yeah and i know this is kind of fading from your uh sharpling and worcester uh, no it's all fine question, but but <laughs> like you know i think about box sets more and more and i'm like you know the world might have enough box sets you know like
1: <laughs> yeah i i recognize it and that's another reason why i mean i find a lot of what numero does interesting in that you do seem very willing to meet people where they're at. I mean, I, I think, but also willing to kind of try things that make sense, but you don't see other labels. I'm thinking of the environments app, you know, and the stuff that we had William Tyler and Douglas on to talk about that on this show ages and ages ago. Um, but the idea that like there could you could reissue a project as an app too, you know, or, or something else. I don't know. And it seems to me like there's a little, there's an interest on your part in, in making sure that you're keeping your eyes open for possibilities like that. I mean, what was that process like? Was that a, in the end, I mean, did you feel like it, you created something that you were really, you know, proud of, or that you, that you, cause I really enjoyed my engagement with it. It's a, it's a, re, I mean, yeah, it's really fun.
0: I, I think we did a great job for an independent record label making an app, you know, we're not, yeah. we're not a technology company. Um, you know, we made something we, that was really adventurous, um, that is, takes up, you know, half a gigabyte on your phone. Um, and right. the, the reality <laughs> of the situation is it's like, it, it's a really cool product for you know, bringing people into the environment's universe. I'm not certain it's a great product for the future of how people stream music or content or whatever. Sure. Um, but I love what it is. And and moreover, to me, it was an opportunity for Numero to bring the environment's brand back out and to show people it's like, here's a cool thing that Hap started in 1969 that you probably don't know about. You know, right. I changed the way that people listened to nature in the late 60s and 70s. These records sold millions of copies. Let's reconsider what he was doing. And so the app was an opportunity to have that conversation about him. It was successful. Don't get me wrong. Like like it sold. People have it. But simultaneously, it's just like, I think that the app infrastructure and and marketplace might be sort of fading away. Like nobody's app crazy the way that they used to be. You know, there's a point in time when we all got phones and it was sure how many apps can I have? Um, But, you know, right. You (laughs) you just use fewer and fewer apps, you know, and you, you figure out the ones that are like really necessary to your life. Um, and I don't know that environments is going to be the long-term solution for that body of recordings, but you know, we got to do the environments t-shirt off of that. We, I can, uh, I can help. Oh yeah. We've sold. So many of those shirts that it's just like the shirt is is the world and the, the tote bag version. There's a mug, you know, like it's like you know, like we.
1: Yo, that's what I, I was gonna I was gonna say. There's it's an incredible launch for that T-shirt, which has enjoyed an incredible second life, you know, or whatever life it would be.
0: Yeah, so it's like it's like rather than think about it just as an app, it's like no, it's the universe. Like environments is a whole world that we created, and we're still like there's a there's a book plan, There's maybe a box set that's going to come out of like some of the stuff that you know like uh, uh, there's there's a bunch of ideas that are floating around for this world still and it's like it's never over that's the cool thing about it is it's like it may fade from view for a little while but then you come back around with something a new way to look at it and then it's evergreen it becomes a thing where you constantly come back to it and and you know all the stuff's up on spotify so if anybody wants to go look at environments you can just go play all the environments like i'm just as fine with you buying the apps for 299 as i am for you just to listen to, you know, uh, masted sailboat, you know, from the comfort of your phone, it's the same thing right? in, in a lot of ways. So it, it's, it's, you know, like maybe one makes me less money, but simultaneously it's just like what we're doing with environments is about more than money.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it, it I, that is that one of the challenges to like, make sure that you're able to, how do you stay in touch with that? Like kind of what you view as a pure motivation in terms of the pro- projects you're doing i mean is it is it pretty instinctual
0: um well, like on something that i personally work on or something that the label's like you know because we had other Just people a, who bring in projects too and oh of, like, of course like,
1: right 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 but i mean a, 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 at the end of the day you got to put your stamp on everything pretty much
0: yeah i mean I, Look, I'm not going to say that I love every single thing that we've done as an experience for me to listen to, you know, like there are certain things that are not really to my taste, but I think that we bring a consistent uh, approach to it so that you always know that if you buy something Numero from Numero, it's going to be interesting at the very least. Now, whether or not it's to your taste you know, I, I cannot guarantee that. But I do think that we present things uh, in a pretty compelling way. And, you know, that that we make an argument for this being something worth listening to.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's cool. That's cool. I definitely, I wasn't even, you know, trying to no, no, point out I, any specific releases that I didn't dig. No, no, um, and and but... I think
0: the, the other part of your question was like, you know, how do I make that distinction of, of what's of what's worth it and what's not worth it? Well, you know, we yeah. have different lines. So it's like we've got the main line of records, which to me is like the highest, you know, it's like got to do line rents. We've got to have photos. We've right. got labels. And, you know, it's like there's there, there's there's like a high-end version. Then there's there's these 800 line records, which like, you know, it's like they've got, you know, just like, it's, like it's just the cover and
1: I've got so many of those that are just great, and I didn't even know what they were. You just when you guys did that, uh, uh, the rolling record store thing, which you, you're part of, yeah, you just pick it up because it's like, oh, I don't know
0: what is this, you know, and like to me, like, <laughs> yeah, that's kind of cool. If you're into you know Cold Wave and you find this cool Cold Wave record, like you're gonna dig it and it's gonna be at a, at a good price, and it's just like, you know, and, and, you know, but we like the records move all sorts of different ways, so it's like we have Antenna as a deluxe edition, we have Antenna as the EP edition that's like you know more consumer friendly and or price friendly and and you know like they serve cool little markets for each of them and and I'm I'm excited for anybody who finds that record you know and it's like we can you know we can sort of value what we put in the line based on like where it sort of goes in that that that, that value chart you know it's like if we think it's really really great we'll put it in the main line if we think it's something that needs to season a little bit we'll put it a little bit further down like I, you know like and and there's still great things I mean like still johnson is it because i'm black is in our 1200 line and that's just a classic record you know like we right try to, we try to keep classic records just in print you know like i just want to be i want when a kid goes into a record store to be able to find duster stratosphere you know and just be able to pull it out and be like cool i want this i saw it great they've got it i'm taking it home with me um yeah you know so so like there's just those i don't know it's like different levels of of um of the market that I'm interested in accessing will sort of depend on what sort of projects that we will make and, you know, and won't make.
1: Yeah. So, you know, what's interesting is I, I, the, the, the white zombie set comes to mind, obviously one of the, at least by name, it seems more like an outlier than the actual tone of the music. Uh, it isn't an outlier when it's combined with a lot of that other stuff, but the name people, people think of that, Do you see Numero, uh, engaging any sort of like, I, I, I'm, I'm curious about the idea of like, are there genres that just like, you're not going to touch something like new metal is, is, is Numero ever going to do a new metal line or something like that? Could you imagine a world where that's the case?
0: I don't, I don't know. I mean, that's the thing is it's like if the right project came up and it was the right access and the right thing and that there's a you know there's an audience for it it's it's like sometimes it's just like it's just fun to to turn the software on you know and like see what we can make yeah and like to, to work on white zombie meant that i got to work with rob zombie which is a really he's a really interesting person you know and that he's a his personality was something i kind of had to like figure out uh, you know about how to make something that he would like um because he he actually has very discerning tastes and he has a lot of opinions um And you know, like he's got good opinions. Yeah. Like, and so in a lot of ways, sometimes when you work on something like a blondie or a white zombie, you know, it's like, you, you got to check a little bit of that ego at the door, but also it's an opportunity to learn. It's an opportunity to, to, to try a different audience that you may not get to. Like we've always really coveted a metal audience. You know, we've done acid nightmares, dark scorch, canticles, Uh, the Medusa record, you know, like this Bound for Hell thing that's coming out of all this. It's like we, Josephus, you know, we covet. That Josephus record is. Yeah. I I think that there's a cool metal audience out there that wants this stuff. We just, we just got to reach them again with the product that they want. And then all of a sudden, next time you do bring a metal record out and they're on your email list and you send them that thing, they're like, cool, Bound for Hell. That looks rad. You got the guys that did Medusa. I love that. I'm going to buy this record. Right. You know, like that, that's the, you know, the type of thing is like, I, I don't ever want us to get to a place where we feel uncomfortable um, in a genre, you know, like I, I like us to be more omnivorous where it's like we could do a do op record. We could do uh, you know, a new Orleans bop record, you know, like where we we could, we could live in any different, um, you know, place that, that we want to live depending upon um you know, where, where our interests were, our taste line, And sometimes it's cool that like things just sort of walk in the door, you know, it's just like white zombie was not something that we pursued. White zombie was something that, you know, like we met somebody and he was just like, have you ever considered this? And we we're like, we'd never considered that because why would we, uh, right. we thought, then we did consider it. and We were like, that's really rad. Like, let's, let's do that. Like, cause when you listen to those early white zombie recordings, I mean, they're in the same world as like unsane early sonic youth, you know, like they're, uh, you know, uh, the, what's the John Spencer band before John Spencer, uh, uh, puss, uh
1: pussy galore, pussy, pussy galore, yeah, yeah. Like,
0: you know, like they're, they're, you know, they're, they're competent in that work you know, like it's, it's, if you listen to that kind of stuff, it makes sense. Now, if you're listening to this and thinking it's going to sound like, you know, that sort of turn of the century skate metal, <laughs> uh, like, I, I don't think that you're going to like, love this thing. Um, And if you're looking for this thinking that it's going to be like a coding or a duster record, you, you're probably going to be disappointed too. Uh, right. But, but I, I do think that, you know, like white zombies audience, you know, like contains multitudes.
1: Well, yeah, absolutely, and it's and that was a, that was part of what was cool about it was like recognizing that like I mean you were talking it's funny you know before you got on I was talking a little bit with Trevor you know and he had mentioned the ninety day men thing and I was like oh yeah it's you know Rob Lowe from Lycans and and I was thinking of the work that he did with uh, uh Ariel Colma or whatever and it's like oh. Yeah, but he was also in this super cool indie rock band, you know, uh, project. And it's funny because part of what's interesting about you guys engaging with, like, say, the 90s or whatever, is that these people are available and interested in being able to share parts of their stories that so often with the sort of very far back in history stuff, it's tough to get a human sense of some of this stuff. Has that part of, as you've engaged more with people who are, you know, vaguely contemporary? Has that been, you've always been pretty good about tracking down primary sources and things like that, but to some degree, that's just not possible. So has it been different, you know, kind of interacting with with people who still have, like, maybe let's say more of an active say in, in, in how they would like to be perceived?
0: Yeah. Um, and again, there's a little bit of that checking of the ego at the door, but they're also coming to us right. because they know that we're really good at what we do. And so it's just like, we, we tend to kind of meet halfway with people where it's just like, okay, you want to see this. Let me see if I can envision that in a numero frame and come back to you with something, you know, cause it's like, we do yeah. love that. You know, we get to collaborate with these really cool artists. Like, you know, to me, the joy of working with somebody like dan littleton from the hated and ida it's like you know this is like a childhood hero of mine and you know like i really want to make him proud you know like i really want to make something that he's going to love so that when he gets it he's like Dan, ken did and Numero did right for me, you know, and then you, that, yeah. that a guy like Dan, when you do right for him, he starts talking to his friends and he's like, yeah, they killed it. And then all of a sudden there's other projects develop out of just doing that really good work and working with people, especially in the DIY space where it was so much of an artist driven art kind of world, you know, and it's hard because like Numero has almost like a jazz frame around it. Right. Where it's like, you know, we have an aesthetic, like, you know, like we're like, you know, hardcore finished socialist you know like like you know free jazz label and you know we we applied that standard to the top of it um and so it's cool to be able to bend those rules around it like we were talking about earlier it's just like sometimes the aesthetic can change and it's just like man i I always love when somebody comes back to me it's like oh what if we did this but we did this on top of it and it's like yes that's brilliant and like the first time that ever happened to me um, was in the 90s when i was working with this woman named julie duran Um, you know, she, she recorded for my label tree and I remember her putting together one of her records and she was like, oh, I want to redraw the logo in my own handwriting. And I just thought that was brilliant. You know, it's just like, it's just like that way that she could kind of turn it on its head. And, um, you know, I, I always think that like numero, you know, sort of is a little bit more like an art gallery or inviting people into the space to sort of turn the space into what they want to see, but it's still our space.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, so as we kind of get close to wrapping up, I, I'm curious, you've alluded a little bit to the idea that maybe the world has had enough box sets and that might be accurate. I wonder where your stance is when it comes to physical product. Um, obviously, physical product still a very, it's a going concern. It's And it's something that I definitely like to engage with. I wonder in a world though where we are, becoming ever more conscious of the resources that we use, just sort of if that's something that you spend time thinking about and how you sort of reconcile and and, and grapple with those complications uh, as you stare down, you know, maybe another 20 years of running this label or whatever.
0: <laughs> um, I hope not. Uh, but <laughs> I, I think that, you know, this is actually a question that I spent a lot of time Pondering and, and my partners and I spent a lot of time pondering, which is like, what is our environmental footprint um on the world with the making of all this vinyl? And, you know, I've you know, I've been a, a proponent, a long proponent of digital. Um, you know, I think Numero is a really digital forward company. We release almost everything first digitally because we want to see what people are listening to before we put a bunch of resources into making stuff. <laughs> um yeah. and I, I think that, you know, part of this is is really a um Not only Numero, but maybe the entire industry getting smarter and not just like, you know, part of the problem we have this vinyl shortage is that everybody wants to put something out on vinyl. Not everything needs to be out on vinyl. You know, like, I don't think that every single thing that we're finding needs to be out on vinyl. Sometimes I just don't know. Like, we'll put up a digital thing, like this EAFON record, and then all of a sudden it's exploding. And it's like, man, I wish we had this on LP right now. So, you know, like, there's like, I think that that digital is the, is the first step in sort of weaning ourselves off of vinyl. I, I do believe that as Gen X, uh and the boomers sort of age out of owning stuff you know like whether through death or retirement or, <laughs> i was gonna know,
1: say after existence <laughs> yeah you know like I, I mean
0: you you shed stuff throughout your life you know you get older of you, course. you just get rid of stuff and and i'll you know like ideally you go out with nothing at the end um but yeah you know i think yeah. that as as you sort of see a younger generation gen z and, and whatever the next generation is going to be after is going to be less attached to a physical object, you know, as a representation of that music. And so we'll, the, the, it'll, it'll naturally wind itself down, you know, like I don't have any idea what the statistics are on vinyl production versus let's say, you know, um, 4 billion cars on the road. Um, you know, well, but, sure. but I tend to think that like, you know, uh, like, it's, it, you know, we've got so many problems as a society and vinyl production is just like a really, really small part of that problem because this is still really a niche market. I mean, you know, when I think about something like Duster and they've got, you know, two and a half million monthly listeners or something like that. It's like, you know, I, I yes, some of them own the records, but I know how many records they've sold and they haven't sold two and a half million copies of Stratosphere. So, you know, like... Yeah. It, it just yeah. it feels like the audience is kind of already going that way and that eventually this will probably just get smaller and more niche. And, you know, there's cool things like eco vinyl that are coming out. I don't know how how long-term that's going to be. And, but, you know, I, I do think that the, the business as a whole, not just Numero, is, you know, thinking about the long-term envir- environmental impact of vinyl and what we can do. Um, I don't think anybody's just throwing up their hands and being like, you know, fuck it. It's end times, you know, like burn it right. down. Um, I think that, you know, but we're also kind of looking at it and being like, well, if this, you know, this, how long does a bubble last and and how, you know, you want to be part of a boom when you can be, you know, it's just like person who owns a gold mine, you know, during the boom times, so wasn't like, no, no more gold. Like they were like, no, let's get the gold out. So, um, you, right. when you see every label under the sun, putting something out on vinyl right now it's because they recognize that there is a really big market for vinyl right now and that they want to participate in that you know what you know whether it's the 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 biggest major to the kind of you know like coolest little indie that wants to do vinyl so it's like they want to put their stuff on the format that is cool right now um and i think that that's okay yeah
1: yeah no For for now, we might reach a point where it's not okay. We'll have to figure figure it out. But yeah, it's and I mean, obviously, it's not like the digital ecosystem is without its own attendant problems. And of course, you know, but nonetheless.
0: Without a doubt. I mean, like, you know, there there is an electricity element to coal burning to to fire all these, you know, streaming. I'm very, like, cognizant of that. But I, I simultaneously, you know, like, every time I drive between L.A. and Las Vegas, I see that giant solar farm out there. And I'm just like, yeah. Well, God, you know, when we have like 200,000 of these all over the world, it's going to be a lot easier to, you know, to to power our phones and all of this stuff. And it's just like, it's like, I feel like we are racing towards the future a little bit. And there's a certain segment of society that's maybe holding us back from that future, but the future is inevitable. And like this, this kind of thing I think can improve. Now, how much time we're going to have living in, you know, 120 degree temperatures. I I don't know. I mean, it could be that, like, it's like the trade-off of having good electricity Might be that it's just hot as shit out, and you can't go out during the summer, right? Um, Yeah, but but then you will have our records inside. You know, it'll be that's gonna
1: say say, you'll have your you have a lot of tunes to listen to. You'll have all those Sharpling and Worcester calls. Uh, I mean, (laughs) and I mean, I'll have those and and the USB stick and everything else that's included. uh well ken it's been so much fun talking with you man about all this stuff it's it's i really appreciate the the candor and the uh and the and the willingness to to go down memory lane with all this stuff but yeah it's been a lot of fun thank you for taking the time
0: thanks for having me jason
1: Ken Shipley of Numero Group. Along the way, we've heard some selections from the Numero catalog, uh, including songs from Duster, Charlie, Majira, and the Hefker Girl, and Ui. Thanks for joining us. We, as always, appreciate your listen. You can support the podcast by checking out our Patreon page. Your support helps Aquarium Drunkard keep producing this show, and uh, while you're at it, we'd love it if you left a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Click the subscribe button wherever you listen so you never miss an episode. Transmissions is a part of the TalkHouse Podcast Network. I'm Jason P. Woodbury. I write, host, and produce the show. Our audio is edited by Andrew Horton, and the show's executive producer is Justin Gage, Aquarium Drunkard founder. Don't miss his weekly Aquarium Drunkard show every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. PST on Sirius XMU. All right, that is going to bring us to a close. I hope you will come back next week. We're joined by The Comet is Coming. That's Danalog, Betamax, and Chewbacca Hutchins, uh, known for his work with Sons of Comet and many other projects. Really fascinating talk, and I hope you will return. But until then, have a great week. This transmission is concluded.